Our Lord, you demonstrated to us what perfect obedience looks like, what perfect love looks like. You displayed it in the incarnation that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled himself. You took on the appearance of man, the form of a servant, of a slave, and you were obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And you were obedient not merely in the, your death on the cross, but your life was one of perfect obedience, perfect obedience to the Father, perfect fulfillment of the righteousness of the law, perfect love to neighbor. You stand as our example. You stand as the picture of perfect humanity, and through humanity, a perfect display of the glory of the image of God in man. You as God and yet fully man, giving to us not only an example, but providing for us a means of salvation, your own sacrifice, your own life. And so for this we are thankful and we, we rejoice to think of that day when we will be conformed to the body of your glory and we will be perfectly conformed to your image. We will live that out fully, what we display so in many ways pitifully now. But we struggle on to live out that life that we've been given by your grace working in us. And so help us to continue to do that and lead us by your spirit in ways to more fully express that in our lives and as a body to one another and to the world around us. And we ask now that as we prepare our hearts for the table and as we look at your word that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, that you who are ultimately our sanctifier would perform your work and that your word would do its work in us by your mercy, by your grace. And it is to that end that we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles one more time to the epistle of 1 John. The epistle of 1 John, that's in the back of your Bible. It goes Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, and then we get into the three epistles of John, just before Jude and Revelation. So we're looking at the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, really touch on 7 through 13, but verses 7 through 12. And we are... uh, Taking a brief look, as I mentioned last week, to consider the reality of Christian love, particularly as we think about our gathering together again and how special it is for us, and and we're reminded of it because of the time that we had to spend apart, uh, to actually be able to gather and to be in one another's presence again and to be able to fellowship with uh, each other. And, And even though we're only doing that in part and there's still so much more that we want, we're so thankful. It is so nice to uh, not be staring at a computer screen, but actual faces. I hear uh, one person, uh, uh, a pastor, I'm assuming, uh, put up, you know, cardboard uh, pictures <laughs> in the pews of the people who are in his church. So I didn't go that far. I guess I didn't miss you that much uh, to go do that. But, but nonetheless, seriously, it, it is just so nice to look out and actually see the faces. Uh, certainly you're in our hearts, and each person has one another in their hearts. 
but to see you here. And so we're so thankful for that. And it is expression when we gather of our love and our faith in Christ. And it is a way that we express love for one another because we desire, especially being uh, many of you, uh, most who are out in the world uh, all week and having to interact with unbelievers and be a witness in the world. And, and that can be a challenge. And it's such a refreshment to come when you're with God's people again, with those who are like-minded, who share a like faith, and who uh, share the same loves that you have, and the same desires, and the same goals, and hold on to the same truths uh, one another, that we have with one another. And there's something beyond that that's supernatural, it's intangible, it's not something you can define so much as you only know it as a believer, and it is the, that work of the Holy Spirit that unites our hearts, that causes us to share in the life of Jesus Christ through union with Him, through our faith in Him, and that we share something that is profoundly a profound mystery and that's a oneness that Paul could say and scripture could say that we are members of one another and that the intimacy that we share in terms of our relationships is greater even than the natural relationships of family of son and daughter and friends and other kind of relationships it's a supernatural unity that we have it's a supernatural closeness that we share with one another and that's something that the Lord has done. And it is what, as we read uh, in the Gospel of John, what Jesus said and what we'll look at this morning is the very picture of the reality of Christ's life in us. It's a very picture of God's own nature. It is a glorious truth of what it means to be in Christ, that we love one another. And one of the most basic expressions is that we love to gather to one another, with one another, and then that to live out that love in our corporate dwelling together. And again, what, what contrast that, that is, what a contrast that is to the world. I mean, we see selfishness, we see pride, we see violence and anger and hypocrisy and every other wicked part of the fall that inhabits our flesh. And yet, in contrast to that is the church, uh, standing together in love and in unity first among ourselves and then also in how we treat others who bear God's image. Well, that being said, let's read our passage and then we'll, I'll briefly review what we covered last week and then we'll finish it up this morning as we come into the Lord's table. So read with me, if you will, from verse 7 through, and we'll read through verse uh, 21, although we're only going to focus on verses 7 through 12. But read with me, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Tremendous portion of scripture. And one of the most concentrated explanations and commandments and descriptions of the love that we've received and the love we are to display as God's people in all of Scripture. And John, of course, is known for that, sometimes called the Apostle of Love, not only because he is the beloved Apostle who laid his head on Jesus' breast during the Last Supper, but because he is one who demonstrates throughout the writings that he has given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one who portrays and describes and is overwhelmed with the love that he has received from God and the love that God's people are to have for one another. He is the apostle of love. Now, we are looking at verses 7 through 12, and there are three main headings that, uh, for which we, we approach this. And one is that we identify with John the source of Christian love, and that is that we participate in God's own nature. We participate in God's life through Christ by His Spirit. Secondly, we see then the shape of this love. It's not merely a matter of uh, our own human invention, but God defines very specifically what this love is to look like and what its character is to be. And it is modeled for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, what we'll consider this morning is the consummation of God's love, his presence demonstrated among his people by the love that we show for one another. Let me just remind you briefly of what we covered last week. First, in verses 7 through 8, he gives a command at the beginning, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He says later that God is love. Laying the foundation for us here that there is no love, no true love, but that which comes from God. It is a part of God's nature. God exists as a triunity, his very presentation or revelation to us as Father and Son and Holy Spirit who exist in a divine unity that is both a mystery and yet as also an example of love. They exist in perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect unity. Jesus said to the Father that you loved me before the foundation of the world. It says of the Father to the Son that he loved the Son and has given all things into his hands. The very ministry of the Holy Spirit, the very fruit that he produces in the life of his people is love. The whole, the whole life and inner world and relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is love. The love that sent the Son into the world is an overflow of that divine love that he has always had within himself and his desire to bring others to participate in it. 
So he is love. He is the source of all love. He is the creator of all things. Humanity is made in his image. So there is no good and right thing that reflects God's nature that could, could not have him as the source. In other words, none of these things, nothing righteous, nothing good, and no true love begins and finds its source in man but in God himself. That's why the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the greatest fruit of that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, that is distorted because of the fall, but it's restored in Christ. And so, therefore, the central evidence of the restoration of God's image in man, of God's life in man, is that we would love one another. That's what shows more than anything our participation in his life by the Spirit. And so John says this isn't an option. It isn't an add-on. It isn't an extra. It isn't how you're a super-Christian. It's how you know if one is a Christian at all. And so he says in verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So to claim the name of Christ and to not have a picture of uh, the reality of love for other believers that flows out of a love for Christ is a denial of our profession. It is to live opposite of the one whose life we say that we possess. And it is also to say, when God, John says here that God is love, is that God, as the source of love, is the one alone who has the authority and ability to define what that love is and what it looks like. It's a holy love. It's not merely an emotional sentiment. These are things we covered last week. Just a reminder. It's not merely a feeling good or sweet and weepy or emotional towards someone. Those things are not bad. That can be a part of it. It should be a part of the different kinds of love that we express and even that we have for one another. But it is a holy love. It is a holy love. It is a love that's not merely emotional, but a love that is marked by righteousness and a love that upholds justice. doesn't ignore it, and that then is the second part. The shape of this love is seen in the person and the work of Christ, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we would live through Him. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That propitiation for our sin is a sovereign act, a sovereign work of God, whereby Christ in Himself endured divine wrath, fulfilled the just requirement of the law, both in His obedience and even in His obedience to endure the condemnation of the law that is rightly should fall on us. He took it on himself. And in doing that, and this is the idea of propitiation, he satisfied that justice and averted God's wrath from us, removed it away from us by taking it on to himself. And John says this is then the shape of what Christian love looks like. It has content, and that content is the person in the work of Christ. And then we noted there are five characteristics of this love. Five characteristics of this love. And again, this is review, and then we'll move on to the last point. The first characteristic of then of the love that we share to one another is that it is sourced in a new nature. It flows out of a share in the divine life of God. That means then that what makes Christian love unique is this that it doesn't depend on the worthiness of the object to whom it's expressed. 
When God loved us, uh, we were rebels, we were enemies, we were dead, we were those who hated God, who scorned His authority, who stood in rebellion to Him, and yet God loved us. Why? Because love is God's own nature. We share in that nature, and so when we love, we don't love because that person elicits love out of us. We love because we've received the love of God, and then we just flows out of us because of His Spirit at work in us. And that is tremendously, of course, foundational and profoundly important. How often do we have a hard time loving someone, and the reason is, well, because they do this, or they're like this, or they treated me like this. And the divine answer to that be, God's answer to that would be, so what? Love them. Love them. And look at your own life, and let me look at mine. So the first part of this is that Christian love is expressed and is sourced in the love that we've received from God, not the worthiness of the object. Do you know how many relationships and homes and marriages and friendships would be transformed by understanding that truth? That truth. But number two is this. Christian love is self-sacrificing, not self-protecting. Jesus did not run when he saw the cross laying before him. But as we mentioned last week, one of the most amazing verses in Scripture, and for many of you, for me, is when, it, when after he prayed that prayer that was sung to us, not my will, but your will be done, and he knew that, okay, the will was for him to go to the cross. That was unavoidable. He already knew that, but it was affirmed in his heart after his prayer with the Father. It says he got up, he told the disciples who were sleeping, get up, we must be going. Why? Because his betrayer was at hand. He didn't seek to protect himself. He actually exposed himself to the worst kind of rejection and suffering out of love for his people. And so our love in modeling that is that it's self-sacrificing, not self-protecting. Our love should not be governed by what is convenient and easy, but what best serves others. Now, none of us do this perfect, but this is the model. This is what we strive for. Third, Christian love is practical. It meets real needs. Our greatest need was to be forgiven of our sin. God met us at the point of our greatest need, and that is how we are then to display this love in part. As a matter of fact, he said over in chapter 3, uh, we know love by this, that he, in chapter 3, verse 16, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he gives an example, or the brethren, and then he gives an example of those who have the world's good, sees his brother needs, and closes his heart. How does the love of God abide in him? And the idea is simply this, that whatever we have that's enabled to be a benefit and a help to someone else we should never be stingy with in whatever way God has given us resources whether that be financial whether that be with time whether that be with skill whether that be with some kind of giftedness whatever God has given to us we are to see as his mandate really uh, of how we're to serve others that he brings into our sphere that have need and that means it's a very practical love. It's a very practical love. Number four, Christian love is enabled by a genuine knowledge of God and fellowship with Him. As a matter of fact, he says here that everyone, in verse 7, who loves is born of God, that is, has experienced regeneration, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, out of which flow our union with Christ, our faith in Christ, our share in His life. And then he said, and knows God, knows God intimately, knows God truly, knows God in the reality of the inner being, of thoughts and reasons, affections, knows God in the inner man. 
And it's out of that knowledge of God then that we are able to display this kind of love. And lastly, we noted that Christian love is holy. It's marked by truth, righteousness, and opposition to sin. So a right understanding of the love that we are to have for one another as a church doesn't minimize sin. It opposes sin. That's the whole idea. In other words, yes, love covers a multitude of sin, Peter reminds us. Yes, that is the patience, that is the forgiveness. But it is to say we don't justify sin and overlook sin that needs to be addressed in light of love. That was the failure that Paul addressed in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. You have one among you creating this heinous sin. But rather than addressing it in some false kind of sense of graciousness, you've just let it go. Look how gracious we are. And Paul says, no, that's actually sin is, is an expression of pride. So real love is a holy love. It's a love that deals with sin. A real love hates sin in us and a real love has enough care and concern for those around us that when we see uh, sin in life that needs to be addressed that we want to go humbly and to help that person for the glory of Christ and for the good of their own soul. So love never justifies sin. Uh, we noted that in a quote I gave you last week of how often love is made to justify all kinds of sin in the world's eyes. Homosexual marriage. Well, we love one another. Why shouldn't we? Well, because God said that's not a real kind of love. That's a sinful love. It's outside of his purposes for sex and for gender. Or how many times in relationships, you know, I love you, therefore, but we're not married yet, but that's okay because my love for you is real sincere. I mean it. And the immorality that flows out of that. And so on. So it's a real love. Love is a, is a holy love. It's a love that, that reflects and models God's own righteous character. And his own righteous behavior. And what was displayed in Christ. Now thirdly, and this is where we'll end as we come into the Lord's table. And we'll spend just a little bit of time on this. And namely, the consummation of God's love. And this is verse 11, verses 11 to 12. The consummation of God's love, you could say the completion of God's love, is Christian love. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, this is an amazing statement, an amazing statement. But before we get to John's statement, I want to just remind you again. I want to set a kind of a, a broad biblical context uh, for this statement, just to help fill it out just a bit. And we've covered some of these things before, but I want to, want to remind you of this. Within redemptive history of the Old Testament, the climactic and defining event that signified, and this is an important statement, that signified the goal of God's covenant love to his people was the fact that he came to dwell among his people in a visible display of his presence in the tabernacle and then ultimately in the temple. That was the high point of God's and the goal of God's establishing his covenant with his people. Let me give you just one uh, passage here. This is Exodus 25. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read it. 
Exodus 25, 8, he says this. In the midst of, remember Exodus 25 comes after Mount, the, of course, the deliverance out of Egypt, the miracles that he did there, the wandering and uh, the first beginnings of the wanderings in Canaan, or uh, in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, where he gave his law. And as a part of what he was, of his law, of his instructing his people about how they were to have fellowship and maintain covenant fellowship with him, he says this in verse 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That is, the very, that is the very heart of the purpose and the goal of God's covenant with his people. He says it again in verse, chapter 29, verses 45 to 46. He says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You'll remember that at places in the Old Testament it was said, what people has a God so near as you, as Israel, who dwells among them? And what is the amazement of that, of course, and what was the whole point of the priesthood and the sacrifices and the separation within the tabernacle and the temple itself of the holy place and in the most holy place, is that the God who dwells among them is not a God who is like his people, but a God who is utterly distinct from his people in his transcendence and his holiness, his glory. And, of course, he had to accentuate that right at the beginning of the establishment of temple worship with Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who came in an unworthy manner. Fire came out from the midst and consumed them. And then he told Aaron not to weep for them lest he would be dishonored by what he did. Again, it's a holy love. It's a holy presence. But that was at the high point of the covenant for Israel. And of course in the temple God's presence came again and his glory filled the temple. And then we have throughout the history of Israel we have this account of the glory of God in Ezekiel 8 through 10 and particularly in chapter 10 where the prophet recounts for us through the vision that God had given him a removal of God's visible presence, his glory among his people from the temple. So if you'll remember beginning around chapter 8, he begins to show the prophet the kind of evil and adultery that was going on among his people. And he says I'll show you wicked things. And then he says and I'll show you more. And then I'll show you more and I'll show you more even so that you get all the way into the holy of holies and they have their back turned of God and they're worshiping idols and he's saying am I not right to bring judgment on my people am I not right the calamity that I'm going to bring I am because look at how they've abandoned me and so in Ezekiel 10, he gives the prophet this vision of his glory departing from his people just before he brings the destruction that he promised, namely the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the exile of his people into a foreign land. And so the judgment came, the glory was gone, and the judgment came. And even though he brought the people back into the land, even though he did restore them as he promised through the prophet Jeremiah, as Daniel anticipated, you remember that's Ezra and Nehemiah, he brought them into the land, he reestablished worship, he built the walls again of the temple, it was rebuilt, uh, the temple was rebuilt, that's known as Second Temple Judaism, that temple never had the glory of Solomon, and some of those who remembered that, who were young, when they were taken out into exile, were weeping because they saw this lesser glory for the second temple than the first temple. But here's an interesting thing. In the biblical account, 
the glory of God never returned to Israel. That, that visible presence of God's glory never returned to Israel. It was never there. They still had the holy place. They still had all of the other parts of the law of divine worship. They still had the holy of holies. But the visible presence of God never returned. We don't hear of that again until you can imagine when the appearance of Christ. The appearance of Christ. And in the appearance of Christ, these amazing words are said in John 14, after establishing that he was in the beginning, was the word, he was with God, he was God, he came to his own, his own rejected him. He says this, he says, And the word, in verse 14, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was the next phase in God. Yeah. 
3,000 souls were added to the Spirit by God. And if they live for the kind of unity that they persist their own property, they persist their own possessions in order that they might give and meet every need that was necessary among the newly formed group of people in the Spirit. The one new man named Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, those who dwell by the Spirit are the body of Christ, the body of the risen Lord Christ. This physical body is in heaven, it's the right hand of the Father. They dwell by the Spirit. We are the expression of His life. We are His body here on earth. And we, as Christian testimony, then, as those who possess the Spirit of God, are Christ's spirit are the temple of God on earth. There's no more physical temple. Now God's temple is his people. It's his people. This is what Jesus said, or excuse me, Paul said in Ephesians. You're no longer aliens and strangers, but you fellow citizens with the saints are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and him the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are the temple of God. You possess His Spirit. Again, that was the significance of the temple, that God's presence was there. And now he's saying that presence resides in you, my people. That presence that was magnificently and climactically displayed in Christ is now displayed in you, God's people. And so as the church grew, the message and appointed messengers of Christ were affirmed through miraculous empowerment by the Spirit. But primarily, the presence of the Spirit was made known in this new people of God and those who formed the new temple through the evidence of transformed lives, lives that conformed to the life of Christ. Lives that conformed to the life of Christ. And at the heart of this transformation and evidence of the Spirit of God's presence among the people is, according to John's word, the transformation of a life and the fruit of Spirit-produced love for one another grounded in the person and the work of Christ. How, do, how does God's presence, it's not in the tabernacle, it's not in the temple, it's not even displayed in the person of Christ anymore who's ascended at the Father, but His presence is displayed in His people through the Spirit. How is that presence displayed? Well, John says, through a transformed life wherein the love of Christ is displayed among the members. This is amazing. So when John says this in 1 John chapter 4... Verse 12, he says, again, Beloved, no one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. No one has seen God. God is invisible. God is spirit. God is not able to be seen in physical form, because that He isn't. But he is seen and he is made known to the world through his spirit that indwells his people through the love that we have for one another. That's his statement. 
that when we have Christ-centered love that reflects the love of the gospel, we manifest the presence of God to this world. We are the proof of Christ and his work. Let me give you just one other, just quick verse here, and then we'll move on. Jesus says this as well in his prayer to the Father in John 17. He says, we read this last week, The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. This is his glory as Redeemer, his glory as the Messiah, his glory as the incarnate Son of God who purchased the people for God and for himself. He says that they may be one just as we are one, and in I in them and you in me, so that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know... So that, that's the purpose statement, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. What is the proof of Christ among his people? That they dwell in unity out of their faith in Christ. That their faith in Christ unites them to a life of love and obedience to him. And that is the proof then that we have been born of God. And so that's what he says in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And the only response, he says, it's the only right response. We ought to love one another. Now, don't be confused by the word of ought here. It's not meant simply to make a suggestion or an option. He's not saying, well, you know, you were loved by God. So I really, really, really think you should love one another. That's not the intention. He's already made clear if, if there's an absence of this love, we don't even know him. It is the oughtness that emphasizes the justness and the rightness of God's expectation of his love to be demonstrated among his people. That's the idea. It ought to be. It must be. It should be. It could be no other way or else there's not a testimony of divine life among you. So our love to one another is an expression of his own love for his children. One captured it this way. This is not an extra ingredient that we might add to our discipleship if we feel especially moved to do so. We owe it to the loving Father not to slander his name any further by denying his love in our human relations. So I had it up there, but it's not up there. Uh, if we have appreciated something of the infinite price prayed, paid for our redemption, then we shall see at once how vital it is that we do not continue to indulge ourselves in sin. So this is what we ought to do. It is what we are commanded to do. It is the way that we display God's love for us, our shared life in him. Now I want to make just one other connection to that reality here. Uh, and it's this. Uh, John makes this statement amazingly in one other place. Uh, in John 1.18. Again, I'll just read this to you. And I'll make the connection for you. He says this. He says in verse 18 of John 1, he says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has explained him. No one has seen God at any time. So he's saying nobody has seen God in his essence. We see the fruit of God's work. We see God now in the person of Christ, in the fullness of deity dwelling in him, and therefore displayed in him and in his life. But God becomes manifest in the physical appearing, in his physical acts, but ultimately in his taking on humanity in the person of the Son in Christ. John is picking up on that idea here in verse 12 where he says, No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, then his presence is manifest among us. 
His love is perfected in us. The reality of Christ is made visible in us. So this is how God is made visible to the world, that we share in the life of Christ and we demonstrate this life in how we love one another. That's the theological foundation for it. Uh, so John states this essentially, the invisible God is made visible to the world through our love to one another as those who have received his grace in Christ and through Christ share in his life by the Spirit. We are the body of Christ on earth. One said, we cannot see God because he is spirit. What we can see is his effect. We cannot see the wind, but we see what it can do. We cannot see electricity, but we can see the effect it produces. The effect of God is love. You know, there's just one other connection to make before we wrap this up and, come and connect this to the table. Jesus said in John 10, he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. So if I say things but I don't do them, then I'm a fraud like anybody else who claims to be the Christ. But, he says, if I do them, if I make these claims and I do the works that the Father has given me to do, now that's a different situation. He says, then believe the works. In other words, believe what they're pointing to. Believe their affirmation of my testimony of myself. He says, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And here's the connection. The testimony of the church of Christ's work on our behalf, our relationship to him, our testimony of his indwelling spirit, all of these theological and biblical truths that we proclaim has weight only in as much as it's demonstrated in our lives of the church. That's the connection. We could say, modeling the logic of Jesus, don't believe that I say it, look at our lives. Look at the community of the church together. The believers dwelling in unity as brothers and sisters under the banner of Christ and in the reality of experienced grace. And he says in verse 13, that's how we know that he's given us of his spirit. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. How do we know the spirit resides in us? How do we know that we are the place of God's dwelling? Well, because of this, because of the love that we have for one another says something similar in verse 23 of chapter 3. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, or we know by this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. And so that is, that is the commandment. And as we come into the Lord's table, let me just uh, jump to here. The presence of God is no more clearly displayed than that. And this event of, us, event of us coming together and together partaking of the bread, remembering the body of Christ, drinking of the cup, remembering and representing the blood of Christ, his violent death on our behalf, we display his presence among us. The bread represents his body, which was assumed by the Son and given to us as the one who fulfilled all righteousness and stood in our place, who still stands in our place as our mediator with the Father. The wine represents, or grape juice in our case, represents the violent death of that body given for us as a propitiation for our sin and atoning sacrifice that satisfies God's justice and has averted God's wrath from us. 
The fact that we take the bread together as a church pictures our faith in Christ, that we are the fruit of his death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit, that we are the one people of God, that we are the body of Christ. We are symbolizing his presence among us, that we have the Holy Spirit. And the bread and the wine also make the public proclamation of our certain hope that he who was raised from the dead has ascended to the right hand of the Father is returning to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom in righteousness on the earth and to bring forth his justice. And I think there's a, a real sense, and, and I think I probably speak for all of you as I share my, this and me, I think we would all say the same thing. You know, just living with our sin makes us long for the presence of God, even when everything's good, right? Just, just living with ourselves and, and not being able to give to him the worship and experience the life that we want to. But even more, that's heightened in our experience anyway as Americans when we see this great unrest and we see this great turmoil and we see wickedness have such power and sway over our culture and over our leaders in amazing ways. I think many of us are just amazed. All the more then that when we come together, we display that in the midst of all of this, we are a people who are anticipating something so much greater. We're bearing testimony to the world that Christ is returning, that Christ will judge the living and the dead, that he will establish his kingdom, that we are citizens of that kingdom. And in doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul said to the Corinthians. But we also are bearing witness to Christ, to his life, and bearing witness to the reality of the gospel to the world, that we are the people of God. We are the ones that have not loved God, but that have received his love for us in the Son, and we anticipate his return. And we should be strengthened as we go to live in the world outside of this, to go to watch the news and to interact with our neighbors and our co-workers. We're strengthened to remember that be faithful. He's returning. Hold fast. He's returning. Don't give up. He's returning. Don't grow weary in doing good. We will give an account to him. Don't fail and compromise on our love and our following of him, our holiness, because he is our Lord who's made a promise to us that he will fulfill. And part of the seal and the demonstration of that is what we'll now remember together in the Lord's table. So I think, does anybody not have one of those prepackaged things? Does anybody need one? If you do, just you have to raise your hand. I know nobody likes to do that, but we want to get one to you. Okay, good. Everyone has one. Well, let me do this. Let me, uh, let me pray briefly, and I'm going to give you just a few moments uh, to pray silently to yourselves. And just to commune with the Lord, confess sin if there needs to be sin, confess any lack of love, ruptured relationships, anything that might need to be dealt with, dealt with in your own walk with the Lord. Just take this time to fellowship, to remember His grace, to remember the love that He's shown to us in Christ, to examine your life and also to celebrate what He's done in the gospel. And then uh, I'll open it, uh, we'll together uh, take these elements. But I'll give you just a few moments right after I pray. Father, thank you. For the great gift of your Son, who is a propitiation for our sin. And Lord, there's a thousand and more practical ways that we are to live this out. But help us to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Again, even as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that we would know the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of your love. And that we would be a people who display it uh, to one another. 
And now as we come to remember these elements, remind us in doing so of our commitment of faith to you. Remind us of our commitment of faith to one another and our commitment to walk in obedience to you by your grace as we live out our days here on this earth. And it is to that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.